Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, a Texas man who died one month after being diagnosed with cancer left behind a self-written obituary filled with big lessons he learned in his 75 years of life. What would you write in your own obituary? Mr Hinch, welcome to That's Life. Hello again, mate. This is, I'm enjoying these. I really am. Well, the, the, the topic we're going to talk about now was based on a uh, story I saw, which I sent to you, and then you said, oh, it's a bit twee, the, uh, the stuff he's written. But basically, it's a, it's a guy in Texas in the United States who knew that uh, he was going to die. He only had a month to live, so he decided that he'd write his own obituary. Mm. Is that something you've considered? Mr. Hinch. Uh, probably, yeah. Look, his, his name was Lonnie Dillard, and they claimed he loved getting the last word, and so he decided he'd write his own obituary. I, I thought it was a bit twee. He had things like headlines, like, where are we? Uh, choose to be happy. Do not save things for nice. Don't be obsessed by money, which is smart. Be kind. Set your priorities. Be true, etc. But, it would look, it's a good idea. Um, I've always said, as you know, and it's caused me trouble sometimes, all history owes the dead is the truth. Uh, but writing your own obituary, I suppose, means you can you can avoid that a little bit. I, uh, I, well, I've been asked, you ask in interviews, what would, you, what would you put in your obituary, what would you put in your tombstone? And I've always come up with two words, what I like, he tried. <laughs> That'll be it, he tried. Uh, uh, what I like about it is that this guy's come up with some lessons in life. You know, he's, he's 75, I think, when, when he yeah. died. So it wasn't an old age, but he got to I mean, a lot of people don't get to 75. So anyone who gets there to that point, I guess, is, is lucky because, you know, well, young people you're, you're die. You're right, because to interrupt you for a second, my dad, who died at 94, but he'd say, I'm 92, not out, not a bad innings. <laughs> Well, if you make it to the 90s and you're reasonably healthy doing it, you have been blessed in life, really. Uh, my dad died at 94. Uh, he smoked since the age of eight. He got lung cancer at the end. But, um, you know, for 94 years, he was fit, healthy, and had all of his faculties. So he was very lucky. Well, I'm very lucky, and my family's been very lucky, although my mum died in her 60s of cancer. Um, but my on my my paternal side, my only auntie lived to ninety five. My grandma, my nana lived to ninety six. My dad lived to ninety four. Um, there are four kids in the Hinch family. We've had a lot of illness, but we're all still here. The oldest is um, eighty three, and the youngest is seventy. So we're not doing bad, Lee. One of the, uh, the things this, this gentleman said in his obituary was, uh, choose to be happy. Now, there's a lot of depression. Uh, I don't know about you, Darren. When I was growing up, I didn't really know anything about depression. I used to hear True. the word and I'd think, I don't understand what that means. We didn't even hear the, we didn't even hear the word. <laughs> it just wasn't a word used in, in, in a family. Yeah, in our but now world. it's... it's, it's uh, very prevalent. Lots of people. Yeah, look, look you, you, you're good. Choose to be happy. It's a good line. I mean, I've forgotten the exact wording of it, but Sir Tom, Sir Tom 
Sir Captain Thomas Moore, who who died recently, uh, the wonderful British guy who did raise all those millions of dollars for walking for, for during the COVID uh, crisis, he he said something like, "Tomorrow will be a happy day, or tomorrow will be a great day," and that was the title of his of his. I'll bug it up, but that'll be the title of his biography. Something like, that, "Tomorrow will be a great day," and I think that's that's a good attitude to take. You know, when you wake up in the morning, and say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna have a good day today." I want to enjoy today, and uh, I, I find that encouraging. I, I must admit, I, even as a pragmatist and, a, and, a, and an atheist, I, I wake up fairly positive. Ironically, I was doing some writing the other day about people in retirement. You know, as you get older, and we're talking about obituaries, so I suppose this, this, is, this is quite, quite uh, uh, cognizant. Um, and that is, if when you're in retirement. Uh, just don't retire and do nothing. We've talked about this before, but think, what am I going to do today? I even read somewhere, somebody saying, write down, today I will do, or today I will achieve. So when you go to bed that night, you say, yep, I did achieve something. Even if it's just going for a walk, five kilometre walk as I do, or or working or writing. On, you, can't just, you can't just rearrange your closet every day in retirement. Um, you've been through difficulties, I mean, uh, yeah, enormous difficulties with uh, the liver transplant that you had, where, where you thought you were going to die. Now, how difficult was it waking up in the morning uh, knowing that that was hanging over your head? Um, wasn't difficult. wasn't difficult at all. I mean, I, I, I've written about this in, in, uh, in one of my books that uh, I never, ever thought, why me? I virtually thought, why not me, you know? Uh, and I just tried to live my life the way I would, keep it as normal as possible. I went to work every day. I saw you guys every day. I was, uh, you know, just just do as much as you can when you can. Uh, I know I've said this before, that when I was diagnosed and told you've got liver cancer, and it's primary liver cancer, and uh, you probably got 12 months maximum without a transplant, uh, I, I planned to go next day to Sydney with my then wife, Chanel. And uh, as soon as I told her the news, she said, well, Sydney's off, isn't it? I said, no. I said, why? She said, well, you're sick. I said, hang on. I'm no different today than I was yesterday. I'm still the same person, but I've got cancer. Um, if I take that attitude, I might as well sit in the box in the lounge room and wait for me to die. I'm just going to live my life the best way I can, keep doing 3AW as much as I can for as long as I can. And that's what happened. One of the things this guy Lonnie in Texas uh, said in his obituary was, uh, don't uh, save things for nice. For example, you know, like a, a, it, it's an Italian thing. I don't know if it's something other cultures do, but uh, Italian wives buy lounge suites, uh, put them in the good room, and then leave the plastic on the lounge suite. Okay. So, I was going to say, did, did your mother leave plastic on the lounge suite? Well, no, my <laughs> mum didn't, but I know a lot of uh, Italian <laughs> ladies who do. And, and, you know, after 50 years, it's, it's like it was bought yesterday. Yeah. Look, that's, that's very good advice. I mean, live... Live for today and live with today. And then, I mean, use stuff. Uh, if you have uh, beautiful um, crystal glasses and you break one, so what? You used it. You lived with it. You didn't, didn't sit. I mean, we used to have my grandparents, uh, my mum didn't, but my grandparents and my auntie did, they kept the good stuff in the, ca the cabinet. It was never used. It was just 
there to be looked at and dusted occasionally. And I think, why? You know, use stuff, enjoy your life, and yeah, yeah, that's a very good bit of advice. But it wasn't only Italian mum who did that. Italians who did that, Tony. <laughs> Others did too. Yeah, plastic. A plastic coating on the, on the on the lounge it just doesn't make sense. It, it must have been the era, you know, living through the depression, where you knew that uh, mm. it, the value of money was very important. Uh, you you didn't damage things because you knew you had to buy something else, and uh, there was no money to do that. To do that, that's true. But it, it was quite, and also, I mean, we had in my my family home in New Zealand. You had the living room where, you know, sometimes the kitchen was separate, but sometimes the dining table was in the, in the living room. But you also had the sitting room, which was never used. It was like another room full of big padded armchairs and, 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 a, and a sofa, sometimes with plastic on it, that was never used. It was like a, it was like a mausoleum. I don't know why we had them. Well, know? That, that would have been, in Italian way of thinking, that would have been for when visitors came so that you had something nice for them to sit there and, and, mm. and, and that's it. You wouldn't be allowed to go there as a kid because you'd think it damage something. <laughs> uh, the other thing he says, Darren, is focus on people, which I guess is a way of saying, uh, you know, friendships uh, are really important. Now, you're a guy who networks um, and has networked all your life, really. Uh, probably more in the past than now, or or, or, or now no, still. Well, no, still. Look, uh, you know, my your world does shrink a bit, uh, but I, uh, I, I was in just the other day at state parliament, you know, with uh, with the Justice Party people there, and uh, I, in all of this, even with networking, I've only ever had a handful of good friends, and they stay good friends. And I remember my dad saying to me once when I was going broke, he said, oh, "I bet all your mates have left you now." It's just because he, he was here sometimes when I'd be paying some um, wallet-choking lunch bill somewhere. I said, no, the friends I had when I was wealthy were the same friends I had when I'm poor and the same friends I still have now. And and that's what's important. I was one of those weird people, I grant, that I was so keen to grow up that I have no childhood friends. I have no, not one school friend left. Uh, and that was because, and I know why, because... At 15, I left school as a high school dropout and became a young journo. And suddenly at 15, I'm, I'm suddenly a, an adult and I'm a journalist, I'm working. And all my friends were still at school. So we had absolutely nothing in common. And then I went overseas quickly. So I, I don't have one school. I know people, friends of mine, who've had friends going back 40, 50, 60 years. I don't have any of those. All my, my oldest friend would be a journo called Colin Dangard who I talked to on Hollywood just last week. He was a Hollywood journalist. And I remember him. I think he did stuff for uh, Bert Newton three on 3UZ three, three as well. Yes, he did, and he was ago. here. Yeah, Colin Dangard. He's he still alive, is he? Well. Still around, still here. And uh, I was just talking to him the other day, and he and I started around the, in the early 60s, 1960s, as police rounds reporters on the Sydney Sun. And he always he wrote, once wrote in one of his books, he said, I was so envious of Hinch. He got the better jobs because he, he always wore a suit and looked better. <laughs> I, I bought a very cheap suit from Ruben F. Scarf and, uh, and it maybe looked like a copper, I think. So in police rounds, it didn't hurt. What about in media, uh, Darren? Have you, have you forged, um, you know, a, a strong friendships oh, yeah. in media? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about O'Brien. Uh, we, we still we have got lunch, lunch at Romeo's probably every Saturday when we can. Um, 
he's been my friend and producer. Actually, he found, he dug out a photo of him and me on board. I think it was the uh, uh, the Rainbow Warrior uh, years ago when we were doing the Hinge program, and I'm there in my 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 stonewashed jeans. <laughs> uh, it got a great reaction because in those days, Dermot, people don't believe this, he was a dead ringer. Uh, for Malcolm Turnbull. Yes, yes. He, uh, even now, I think he looks very similar. I mean, they look yeah, like brothers. And, yeah, and I, I, I'm having an argument saying in a pub one night saying, I said, it's not Malcolm Turnbull. She said, yeah, don't bloody kid me, Hinch, you know it is. <laughs> and it was poor Dermot. And, uh, but he and I go back from, um, oh, to the 80s, 1980s, and I've had other friends going back you know, further than that. I mean, you, 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 our own Darren James, uh, you know, it was on weekends at AW. Um, I've known him since he was a teenager when he, c he came overseas to places like India and China and, and, and the U US with me. You know, so, so I have some friends going back, you know, 40, 40 years, but, but um, having lived overseas, so I've, I've had no school friends. Also, I have no real New Zealand friends either. My family, of course. Can, do you think uh, it's possible to be uh, uh, friends with uh, a woman platonically, or do you, that, does that of come, it is. Does, does that come after the platonic part ends? Um, sometimes <laughs> I'm going to be very careful here. Sometimes you can become wonderful friends for twenty, thirty years if you get the sex out of the way first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, it is totally. I mean, I've got heaps of platonic friends, and and most of my most of my friends uh, would be a female, um, and I enjoy their company. Uh, and I used to be Jackie Weaver used to laugh and say we'd be at a party, and she said Debbie, Darren, and all the men are in the kitchen and the women are down there, and Darren would be there chatting to the women because I found them more interesting. <laughs> you know. uh, Lonnie also says in his obituary, don't uh, be obsessed with money. Now, now you've never been obsessed with money. Uh, I enjoy like, having it. You like to earn it, but you've <laughs> yeah. always spent it, uh, you know, like uh, y y you don't need it. Yeah. Well, somebody once said to the old thing joke was that money won't mean your friends with money who needs them. Um, but somebody said to Jackie one day, she said, oh, all that money, you know, what happened? You spent it. And she looked at them and said, we had it. <laughs> We had it. We enjoyed it, you know, and uh, and that's it. Look, it, I'm, I'm not belittling it. I, I get angry when people win a million dollars in lottery and say it won't change me. You know, it does make life a lot easier. So I'm not belittling that. Times are tough. People are doing it hard. And I watched Sunrise recently, where a hard-working single mum won a hundred and ten thousand dollars on the cash cow, and it was just beautiful. You know, I mean, there's a hundred and ten grand. Tax-free changes your life. I mean, she can now go and put a deposit on a house for her and her two kids. So, if if, if you've got it, it's better than not having. It. I mean, I've been rich and I've been poor, and I've, I've told the story before about uh, my Nadia. He's a great word. I went to the Wood End ATM, and I had six dollars and forty-nine cents in my ATM. And I couldn't get it out because you get minimum withdrawals, ten or twenty bucks or something. So, and I, and, and I lived for a year on uh, on instant noodles. Every night my dinner was instant noodles for a year. Uh, so I know what it's like to be broke, and I know what it's like to be disgustingly had a lot of money and enjoy the the, the good life and the, the up there. But getting back to that obituary that he wrote, yeah, 
life and friends and health are more important. You know, I mean, you could you could be Steve Jobs, you can still get um, get cancer and die. Well, I, w- I would have thought there, there comes a level of, of, of wealth where beyond that, it, it doesn't matter much. I mean, once you've got a house and you've got food and you've got transport and you can go on a holiday, uh, whether you've got a hundred million or five million, does that really matter? The, look, the the moment, the moment that you have paid off your mortgage and you own a house or an apartment with you and your family, that's fantastic. Because you figure, whatever happens, even if something really awful hits us, we've got some protection here. Yeah. But I, I I notice that Tim Wilson's going hard at the moment, trying to get people out of super and using your super to buy a house as a youngster. And I'd say that's, I don't like that at all. I mean, super was designed to help you when you got older. It was designed, you know, I mean, they brought in at 3%, went to 9%. They're fiddling and fighting around now. It should go back up to 10% in the next few months. Um, I know originally Paul Keating wanted to get to 15. It'll never get there now. But if you can have some super, and so you've got, I mean, I, I was doing some writing the other day about, about what it's like to, what do you need as you get older? Uh, I saw one figure, I think I mentioned this once before, saw one figure saying that that a couple needs about 50000 a year and a single person needs 30000 And I thought, well, that's that's a bit bit under. <laughs> I don't know how you can get through everything with your, your car payments and your health payments and your medical and all that. But um, if, if I think if you can get enough in your super and maybe some shares you know, to, to, to be able to live comfortably, uh, they have levels of things like living reasonably or living comfortably or living well. Well, living comfortably means you can't afford overseas holidays and things like that. So. Uh, keep learning new things. Now, I know you, you left school uh, early. You didn't go to a university. Here, no. here in Melbourne, where we are, uh, you know, having an education and going to the right schools seems to be something that people talk about all the time, you know, private school ed- education. Uh, learning new things, I agree with. How important is where where you went to school? No, of course, learning new things is fantastic. I mean, the school thing, uh, I, I know that, that the age I was when I became a journalist, I couldn't get a job now, and especially when journalists are having such a tough time of it at the moment. But learning new things is great. My mother took up China painting in her 50s. And I cherish a couple of the plates that she painted, and and, and, and I love that. Um, on my Goya walks, you know, the get off your ass walks that I do every day, I've I've had a spin off. I've learned something, and that is that I, I take my iPhone with me, and I take photographs every day on my Goya walks, and I post them on Facebook, and I've had some fantastic reactions from all around the world of these little pictures that I post of flowers and houses and bits and pieces and. Things that just take my fancy. So learning new things, and and you know, if the old retirement thing—if you retire—I know the old line when a, when, a, when a frustrated wife says, "Hey, I married you for life, not for lunch." <laughs> after, well, after the husband is retired, starts telling her that she's cooking eggs wrongly or something, you know. Um, but you know, as, as, a, as a retired male, has happened during COVID, take up cooking, learn how to bake sourdough. Make interest magic muffins, you know, those things. So do different things. And, you know, and I, to retire and just waste your time, I know it's a theme I keep pushing, but it really worries me about people because 
my dad spent a third of his life in retirement and uh, it wasn't good. Uh, how important, Darren, is it to be uh, to be kind? Now, we're, we're journalists. We're not always kind. Uh, we try and get to the truth. Getting to the truth uh, often is not kind. It can be pretty brutal. Well, it's true. Look, okay, do unto others is, is, sounds trite, but it's, it's pretty true. I mean, treat other people the way you hope other people treat you. Uh, I, I know that uh, I have... I try to be kind to everybody, but I know that I... Not professionally always. But I know that I have a bad habit, uh, and that is I interrupt people uh, more than I should, and and I'm, I'm conscious of that a bit now. Uh, as a, but you do it professionally. Um, I saw on, on Insiders recently somebody saying, "Oh, David Spears interrupts all the time." I said, "Hey, if he didn't, you'd have politicians going on there, just <laughs> filibustering and talking bullshit." Un unchallenged. I mean, there are times when you have to. I mean, I remember doing three AW. Uh, Malcolm Fraser would filibuster. He'd just give you the longest answers so you get fewer questions in. There was a guy called Bill ha Bill Halfpenny, I think, a, a Labour a union boss. Bill he Hartley, had, he, was it Bill Hartley? Bill Hartley, yeah. He's he a was very left-wing guy. Yeah, yes. he was very clever. He could talk on the exhale. <laughs> so, so, so when he breathed in, you couldn't even jump in and ask a new question because he managed to talk... Breathing in and breathing out. I don't know how he did it, but it was a very clever, a very clever move if you're if you're in the business. But as a journalist, really being kind shouldn't really come into it, though. No, it doesn't. I, no, I, as I a journalist, it doesn't. No, you just you. Um, well, I said earlier, all the history owes the dead the truth, and all you owe your, your interviewer, interviewee rather, is that I want to get the answer, and if I know you're talking crap, I want to I want to call you up on it, you know. But in real life, I mean, do, do you think kindness, I, kindness is good? Do you think, though, Darren, we, we are too brutal, or journalism is too too brutal? I mean, how much no. personal information should we know about uh, someone? There was a there was a, a case of a, a QC who was found dead in a hotel room in Adelaide, and uh, you know there were prostitutes, and a, a wine bottle had been put somewhere where it, it shouldn't be. Uh, and he was found dead like that. Um, uh, how much of that information should the public? Well, it's 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 it, it's always qualified. Has, has, is has that well, stay away from that specific case? But has the person whom you're writing about, um, you know, been guilty of total hypocrisy? You know, I mean, it's like if a if a uh, a guy who's been opposed to uh, to uh, homosexuals' rights is suddenly found, you know, in, in a homosexual situation and he's been a hypocrite, then you, you're entitled as a journo to go with it. When something like um, a politician wraps himself in family values and, uh, but he's, he's got a mistress on the side and yet he put his campaign picture out with his wife and two kids and one dog, uh, you're entitled to go after him uh, the same way that's happened in the US in the past. It's... You know, and it goes back again. All history owes the dead the truth, and and even if they're not dead, if if, if within the laws of within the bounds of defamation, if you are if you are, have something legitimate to go with, then you, go, you as a journalist you go with it. You know, you're not there to be popular. You're not Mary Poppins. You're meant to be a journalist. I mean, yeah, and I feel, I feel quite strongly about that. The, the, the American people needed to know that uh, Bill uh, Clinton had left a stain on uh, Monica Lewinsky's. Dress? I think so. You know why? Because he's told the world, I did not have sexual relations with that woman.
Well, Mr. Lewinsky. That's what he said. And he was, he was lying. And he was the President of the United States of America. And she was an employee. Um, be true to yourself. Now, what does that mean? Uh, to their own self be true if they can't, they can't be honest with any man. There's some quote like that. I, mean, to their own, I haven't thought of this since I was 15. To their own self be true if you can't, you, thou canst be honest with any man. Uh, yeah, be, be, be honest with yourself, you know. Admit your weaknesses and, um, and, and work on them. Which is something we human beings find very hard to do to when we can see weaknesses in everybody else but in mm. our own selves it's it's often pretty hard to accept and do yeah, something that, about yeah well that, 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 and that is human nature because we we all think we're better than we are probably uh travel uh now you're you're a man who's traveled around the world but what do you think that's been able to uh give you I hope it gives you uh, gives you um, broadens your outlook on on everything, on issues on all sorts of issues. You know, um, the fact you realise how lucky we are here. I mean, I, I, I love travelling. I'm not sure I'll do much more of it because COVID is sort of. I read the other day something says we may not get international travel back till 2023. By then there'll be no, no airlines flying. Um, look, travel is wonderful, and and. Just getting there. I, 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 I'd love to go back to New York. When I thought I was going to die, um, I asked uh, my doctors, could I go one more time to New York? And uh, and I did. And I'd, I'd been very positive about my life and I was possibly going to get a get a transplant, etc., etc. The only moment, the only one time, I guess, in all that time that I had a real pang, like, oh, shit, this is real, I was, I was leaving New York City and saw the skyline, and I'm heading back to the to New York airport to come home, as before the transplant. And uh, I looked at that skyline, and suddenly hit me. I thought, "You're never going to see that skyline again." And New York had been a big part of my professional life and personal life, and so that really hit me hard. And then, uh, I, but after the transplant, I, a year later, I wasn't able to travel for a year. But a year later, I went back to New York and. Uh, to enjoy it, but look, no travel. Travel is good. It it, it, it broadens your mind, and, and 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 no matter how cheaply you do it, just do it. Are you nostalgic about things, uh, Darren? Do, do you like to go back to places, or do you uh, do you keep uh, little artifacts and and things that uh, remind yeah, you of stuff? Yeah, uh, I've got I've got a little wall of artifacts. I've got my sail of the century. Uh, Trophy, uh, what I won. I've got pictures. Sorry, of my, can you? Uh, I didn't know about this. What, what happened is you were on oh, sale I, of the century. I, I had a celebrity sale of the century, and uh, I came first, and Jackie Weaver came second. And <laughs> somebody, somebody said, "Oh, look at her. She, she's such a good actress. She's so disappointed." I said, "She's not acting." <laughs> but I, I just actually, I just started as host at midday, and. Um, I won something like a ninety thousand dollar car for a not not for me for for a, a, a nurse in Sydney. You know, you, you you represent other people and as should be. And uh, her car, but I remember my first week on midday, and we got her on. She got this new car, and her car had broken down. And she couldn't drive, and suddenly she got this sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar car. So it was pretty good. <laughs> and what they gave so, you a prize, which you've got now, have you? Like a no, no, they gave me, they gave me a trophy. Yeah, a big cup. Yeah. Sale of century, yeah. They also gave me a bloody Longines watch, which I gave to my female producer, which I probably wish 
shouldn't have. Yeah, too, well, there you are. You're too kind and you're too uh, too generous. <laughs> generous. <laughs> Other than New York and, and Hawaii, uh, which we've spoken about in the past, you, you know, we, we, we've also spoken about you going down to uh, Rio de Janeiro to follow uh, Ronnie Biggs. Are there any places in the world that, um, you know, if, if you could, you, you'd like to go back and experience and, and, and see something? No, no, a, a not really. Or something? Having, having done, I'm glad that in my later years, I actually got a, a Jayco and went to the South Island of New Zealand and spent two weeks cruising around there, which is, somebody said, you know, it's the Norway of the South Pacific, so I don't want to live in bleeping Norway either, you know. But it is the most beautiful country, amazing country, to, to drive around the South Island of New Zealand and see those lakes and just pull up alongside a lake or, put, you know, b- buy yourself a a couple of fresh fish that have just been caught and barbecued them alongside a lake. That was a pretty good good holiday. It was wonderful. So, but no, normally I, I'm a creature. I am a creature of habit. I probably before I cark it, I probably would want to go back. I'd plan to go back to New York again, but we'll see what happens with COVID. Uh, I, I'm not keen to go back to Asia again. I've been there a lot. You know, I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Japan. I've been to China. I've been to um, um, Cambodia. Uh, but I and I. But I've been to Angkor Wat, but I, I, I think I've I've done enough of that. Um, I would I, I, I won't do it, but I wouldn't mind spending a bit more time. And because of COVID, uh, getting a Jayco and going around Australia a bit more. I mean, I, I've been to Ayers Rock, to Uluru. I've, I've I've never been to um, some of some of the uh, the beautiful parts of WA and, and the Northern Territory, Kakadu and places like uh, that. Did you climb Uluru? Yes, I did. Yeah. Paul Barber and Darren James and I, we, we climbed Uluru. Um, coming down was harder than going up, I tell you, believe it or not. There's well, pressure on the back of your muscles, on your thighs. Boy, and yeah. there's, a little, there's a little rock called Chicken Rock only a short way up Uluru where most people turn back, you know. I, uh, I climbed it in 1982, so I was pretty young, so I, I, I pranced up there like a, a show pony. And uh, <laughs> there used to be a book right up the top uh, which you used to be able to sign or there, there was I a lookout there or something, right right on the centre of the rock. The, the, the best part of it for us, no, it was wonderful being up there and having done it, uh, but afterwards, after we came down, uh, an Aboriginal elder took us on a walk around the whole of the rock and we sat in a couple of caves while he told his stories, and that was magic. You know, so we'd we'd been on top of Uluru, then we came down and went walked all the way around, which was huge, and then went and just sat in a, in a very cool cave. It was wonderful. It's uh, I don't think that Australia and it's changing, but it's a long way to go. Where we we embrace this Aboriginal Indigenous culture and ideas and stories and uh, history. Mm. Um, there used to be a guy called Nick, Nick uh, Nipper Winmarty. He uh, he had these wonderful tortoiseshell glasses. He was right. one of the trackers who tracked uh, Azaria Chamberlain. Wonderful old guy, grey hair. Um, you know, uh, dark skin, very distinguished-looking Aboriginal gentleman, wonderful guy. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing place, and the way it changes colours you know, is just extraordinary. And when you, and, and you know, the, it's just amazing experience. I'm, I, it's, look, I'm sorry that some people people can't climb it now because I, I didn't feel any disrespect for Aboriginal people by climbing 
long yeah, period. well, I, I guess they say that uh, there is disrespect in climbing it, and uh, but we, we, we were encouraged by, I was encouraged by Aboriginal elders to to make the climb, mm, mm. and then to sit with them afterwards. You know, so I'm a bit confused about that. Yeah, well, I, I remember the the Alice Springs golf course. Uh, they they couldn't plan it properly because uh, the moment they put a hole somewhere, you know, uh, nine in uh, hole number nine. Uh, Aboriginals would say, no, no, you can't put it there because there's a sacred sort of site there. So then they'd move it. So for years it was a, a sand green. <coughs> they didn't have greens. They had sand there because they couldn't properly establish it because uh, they'd have to move the holes. Eventually, uh, there's something in the Aboriginal culture where they only reveal something when it needs to be revealed. So. It's a pity because I, I, that, that explains something. So I always thought, I, years ago, I remember saying on, on television, I wish, we had, uh, I wish we had a map of Aboriginal sacred sites so we can respect them. But you say it's only revealed when it needs to be. Yeah, well, I remember with the golf course, that was the situation. Now there's a, uh, a proper golf course with most magnificent greens. I've played there and uh, to, to see the green of the grass up against the red of the McDonald Ranges mm. and the blue of the, the outback skies, just something else. Well, you, speaking of golf courses, you'd like this story then, because I used to own a house in, uh, in Kauai, in Hawaii, and, uh, and it was right alongside a golf course, a beautiful golf course, the Princeville Golf Course, and uh, with the Nepali coast and the mountains behind you, it was just extraordinary views. And somebody said to me, why would you b buy a house on a golf course where you don't play golf. And I said, well, quite simple, really. I said, I can never be built out. I've got some, a 300-acre backyard and some other schmuck cuts the lawn every day. <laughs> <laughs> Which made, made sense to me. <laughs> That's right. On that note, Mr Hinch, uh, thank you very much. Uh, by the way, I, I should say, please, people, uh, write a... Uh, uh, a little thing, a little blurb un underneath uh, comment if you like what you've heard. Uh, subscribe and, uh, and tell your friends um, that we've got this podcast because uh, we enjoy enjoying doing it. And if you didn't enjoy it, don't tell your friends. <laughs> tell nobody. <laughs> Keep your mouth Thanks, shut. Uh, Mr. Bye -bye. Hitch, thank you very much.